It's Wednesday, October 2nd. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Matt Greer, and I am joined in studio by Motley Fool analyst Andy Cross and Emily Flippin. I got the gang back together again. How are we doing on Wednesday? Hey, Mac. Doing better than I did yesterday, actually. Hey, Emily. Good. Yeah, good. Doing well, great. Well, I'm pinch hitting for Chris. Chris is resting his voice. So mm. rest assured, Chris Hill will be back in the saddle soon. Great. But we're giving him some much needed rest. On today's show, we are going to talk about a new twist in the trade wars, and we're going to talk some Facebook and crypto. Great. Things are getting interesting. But we begin with Stitch Fix. A rough day for Stitch Fix, down more than 10% on earnings, lower than expected forecast for the current quarter. Now, for those of you who do not follow Stitch Fix, Stitch Fix is in the business of delivering curated boxes of fashion items for customers. They try them on, they buy what they like, they send back the rest. So, Andy and Emily, what do we think of Stitch Fix? And I should add that it is a Motley Fool Rack. Oh, yeah, it's a recommendation in a lot of services, actually. Um, they had a pretty good increase in active clients, 18% year over year, so that brings them to $3.2 million, um, 36% increase in revenue. Um, earnings were much higher than expected, but it seems like people didn't really like the guidance projections mm-hmm. for next quarter. The company said they spent less on advertising over the last quarter, so moving forward, the growth is going to be a little bit slow next quarter. But then they projected for higher revenue. Growth in the quarters after next quarter. Um, what I thought was really interesting, and admittedly, I'm a, I'm a you know pretty out and proud Stitch Fix bear here. Um, but what they were pointing to in later quarters was this increase in revenue growth, which they associated with an increase in sales from their direct to consumer direct, direct buy. Yeah. Yes, their direct buy program, um, which is really interesting because. In my opinion, the value proposition of Stitch Fix was they're supposed to tell you what you like, and then they send it to you, and you buy it, right? But the difference is, is that now they're relying on customers going to the platform, active customers, people who've already subscribed, going to their platform and making one-off purchases of stuff that they like on their platform. Um, it'll be interesting to see if that actually causes this revenue surge. We'll say that, um, like they expect it will. Yeah, it's kind of instead of waiting for your box to come, you can just buy them from your list, buy directly on site. So just some interesting numbers. So, eighteen percent. Active client growth, Emily mentioned, up to 3.2 million. That was actually up from last quarter. And I said uh, recently, I think last week on uh, Motley Fool Money, that I was looking for that to, to, to bounce back up. And it had kind of trended down for the last few quarters and hit 16.6% growth last quarter, Mac. So I was glad to see that back above 18%. The revenue numbers are very attractive. Now, they did have an extra week in there this quarter. So if you balance that all out, it's still growth was still up in the high 20% range. So a little bit of weaker guidance. Some, some interesting commentary. About how the the summer the summer seasons lasting a little bit longer, mm-hmm. and the profit margin on those they call them fixes. Like when you get a box, you get a fix. The the the, the, the clothing in the fixes that are more summer season aren't quite as high from the profit margin. Side. Yeah, who so, knew? The president CEO says summer goods have a lower average selling. Well, price. think about that, right? So you're not buying a sweater, you're not buying a big jacket, you're buying like a tank top maybe or. But or I go to Costco in the summer, Costco in the fall, prices pretty much the same. For the same clothing, not for the sh- not for a shirt and for a jacket, right? So you can kind of see how that plays out. So, so I think as Emily mentioned, the growth f- forecast a little bit changing on their advertising practices, um, a little bit lower gross margin as they're kind of thinking about their inventory management. The thing I like about Stitch Fix is they're so efficient when it comes to managing the inventory, far more efficient than typical retailers, as you would expect for an online platform. Lots of data scientists they continue to invest in, so the profit picture is shifting a little bit, and the the margin picture not as attractive as. 
it used to be. Still, you're buying a company, the stock uh, below one times revenue. They're profitable. They're generating healthy free cash flow. The short ratio, so so people betting against the stock has actually increased pretty dramatically over the last few months. So there there definitely is a healthy market of skepticism out there that they can compete long term against the likes of Amazon. But I like the founding story. I like the market they're playing in. It's a four hundred plus billion dollar market. Online penetration will continue to grow. We will continue to, I think, invest or buy clothing this way over the future. So the long-term picture, I still think Stitch Fix has an advantage being a first mover here. Okay, Emily, you mentioned that you were a bear, so I'm yeah. not going to let you just get away with that. Why? Good, why good. are you so bearish? I don't want to. Because I hear Andy and and and. It seems like there are a lot of reasons to like the company. Why are you bearish? Let's go back to what Andy said. He said they're playing in a $400 billion market. That's like saying Blue Apron is playing in the entire food market. When push comes to shove, everybody who's eating food is not doing it over Blue Apron. And everybody who's wearing clothes is not going to be doing it over Stitch Fix. Ultimately, Stitch Fix is a luxury. It's an expensive way to get clothes that anecdotally have been referred to as very cheap-feeling clothes. And it's a luxury. And so, people who are paying extra money for their Stitch Fit clothes, not just the clothes themselves, but to $20 every time they get a box, um, it's not going to be the majority of the population. It's not going to be that entire $400 billion market. And I'll even go to say that if you are one of the investors that believe we're entering some sort of recession, that's not to say that I think we are. But this is the first thing that gets cut from people's budgets. To me, it's it's not to say that there aren't loyal customers out there. Their numbers prove it. They get increase in customers, they get increase in sales per customer. So, it's very clear that people who use their platform and stick with it love it. But I don't think that's going to be a majority of the population by any means. And I don't think this is revolutionizing the way we buy clothes. Well, we don't need to, they don't need to get all $400 billion in the market. Of course not. So, um, just the fact that clothes continue to be a, uh, an investment that people make. And as we move more into online purchases, um, I, I agree. Some of the points Emily makes are, are, are definitely valid. Like the, this tends to be a little bit more luxury. It tends to be a new experience. Not everyone does it, although more and more people are doing it. Um, and by 18% client growth, I think that represents that they are seeing continued penetration. The online penetration from the entire clothing market will continue to increase. And I think Stitch Fix has some advantages as they move into men. Which are a small fraction of their as a fraction of their audience, even kids, and they're almost all in the U.S. A little bit in the U.K. They still have a global audience to go through. They've proven that they have a they have a profitable model to be able to build upon. So they're going to make those investments. So when I just look at that perspective, at the where the stock price is today, long term opportunity to make money, be profitable, and to make money in this stock, I think is it's it's pretty decent. I think. Okay, well, this will probably shock both of you, but I am not a Stitch Fix user. What? I know. Impossible. I know, I'm probably not the target market, as I mentioned earlier. I, I tend to do a fair amount of my apparel shopping at Costco. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if you can call it apparel, but I, I buy the stuff they have at Costco. But I want to bring Dan Boyd in, our producer, because I know that Dan is a Stitch Fix user, and I think Dan a satisfied Stitch Fix user. Oh, absolutely, Mac. I am a huge fan of oh, Stitch Fix. Okay, sell me on Stitch Fix, because right now I've got my go-to, and my wife hasn't left me, so that's pretty much a win. Yeah, well, uh, then you've got your go-to, you've got your traditional means of clothing yourself. So let me appeal to your what I think might be one of your, you know, strongest qualities: um, your laziness. Okay. Uh, Good. And that, Good. of course, is is a joke. Listener, Smack works very very hard. Uh, <laughs> but the great thing about Stitch Fix for me is I just I hate clothing shopping. 
I d- despise it. I don't want to spend a couple hours out in stores dealing with trying things on, going into uh, changing rooms, and just wasting what I would consider valuable time on that. But does it really solve a problem there? Because I have visions of getting all these clothes I don't want, and then I have to send them back. And and, and it feels a bit like a headache. I know it's a different business model, but for me, it feels a bit like Blue Apron. Well, they, they send you a bag uh, to send things back in. You don't have to do any work. All you have to okay. do is put okay. it in the bag, uh, close the bag up, and uh, you dr- you drive to work, right? Right. You right. just throw the bag in the car, drop okay. it off at the mailbox here at work on your uh, on okay, your way in that. in the morning. And it's, will I look better? Will the clothes make me look better? I th- well, I mean, Costco clothes. I don't want to <laughs> cast any aspersions here. <laughs> they on can't the, not. The <laughs> fantastic <laughs> McCormick jeans. That I've seen you rocking around the office. One uh, size fits all. <laughs> my my wife loves. Uh, she she likes the way the clothes look at me, and she likes uh, every month uh, the, the little fashion show that she gets to uh, help me help me work <laughs> oh, through. Oh, I like so, it. Okay. So it's it's not it's not just a. Uh, a thing for me, but it's also a nice little couples activity for me and my wife. Okay, well, it sounds like it could be a good fit. Let's move on to the World Trade Organization, the WTO. How's that for a segue? Um, backing a U.S. request to impose tariffs on seven and a half billion dollars of European goods. So, Emily, I want you to sort this out for us because this is a long-standing dispute. It goes back to like 2004, mm-hmm. and it involves Airbus and Boeing and unfair practices, and now. The U.S. is going to impose almost $8 billion, or at least they have the right to impose. Yes, anytime we're not talking about the China trade war in the context of trade, I'm a happy camper. But I am a little bummed that today it seems like the trade war might be expanding its horizons a little bit. Uh, so, essentially, to walk you through what happened was now this, like you mentioned, goes back to 2004. The U.S. has made official complaints against the European Union to the World Trade Organization against illegal subsidies that they were giving the European airplane maker Airbus. And that is to say that the EU then responded by saying to the World Trade Organization, Wait a minute, they do the same thing for Boeing. And it's true. We all give subsidies in one form or another. The European Union was giving them apparently lower interest rates. The US was giving Boeing undeserved tax breaks. We're all trying to support our domestic industries. Um, but it is very much against the, the premise of the World Trade Organization. So the World Trade Trade Organization came out um, essentially, yeah, backing the US's request to, to recoup those losses that they believe that the economy sustained. Thanks to these subsidies for Airbus, to the tune of eight billion, nearly eight billion dollars of European goods, um, the EU, if if the U.S. chooses to, I guess, use that right that the World Trade Organization has has granted them, the EU has will likely respond with their own wave of tariffs, which will bring us into a trade war 2.0. Wow. Mm. Okay. That doesn't sound good. That does not sound good. So, is there a takeaway for investors here? Are there stocks that could benefit, or stocks that could get disproportionately hurt? Well, I think it actually is more of a testament to the oligopoly that exists right now between Boeing and mm-hmm. Airbus. The fact that both these companies compete so strongly with each other for what is a growing and lucrative market. Um, I, I think more than anything, we're just seeing a lot of these companies being used as a political tool in a lot of ways. So, personally, as an investor, I don't like to see stuff like this, mm-hmm. but I don't think it would change my investment strategy. I'm not looking to suddenly short Airbus or Boeing. Mm-hmm. I'm not looking to to ex- limit my exposure to their European. 
European Union, all of these things will come and go with good time. Ironically, I heard an Airbus advertisement on the radio today coming oh. in to work. Um, and a lot, you, it's interesting it's like because I knew it was coming. You, well, because what's interesting is in the DC area, which is where we are located, you get a lot of interesting advertisements because the government is such a such mm-hmm. a big employer here and such a big space. So you do have a lot of like government contracting firms advertising on the radio. And I don't ever remember hearing an Airbus one before and I heard that today. So well let's move on and talk some Facebook and crypto. Some of Facebook's partners may be getting cold feet when it comes to Facebook's cryptocurrency. Libra, Visa, MasterCard, and other financial partners that signed on to help build and maintain the Libra Payments Network are reportedly reconsidering their involvement. Now, I should add that Facebook executive David Marcus said that there was no angst internally over Libra's progression. What do we think? Well, I well think, oh. Facebook doesn't have angst over it. They didn't have angst over a lot of other things that ended up being big problems. So I think that quote's hilarious. You know, when we talked about this when the announcement first came out, I think we all were like, listen, this is. This is so early on. In fact, I think Emily and you and I were talking mm-hmm. about this. This is so early on. There's going to be so many changes, so many challenges, lots of concerns and how they position it and how they talk about it. And clearly, here you go. You have some very key partners, very important cust- uh, uh, companies in this payment space and financial and digital currency space that they're now starting to have, oh, wait wait a second, maybe this is a little bit different than what we originally envisioned. And so, it's just natural that you're going to have these struggles. I don't know, ultimately, how this ends up for Facebook and for Libra, whether it totally kills it or whether it's a bump in the road. But it's not surprising that these companies that have been around for years and are extremely well represented in this space are starting to have little questions about whether the valid, whether the Libra is the way they want to go. I love getting pulled onto this podcast because it really gives me the opportunity just to tap on the knowledge of everybody else. So again, today, like yesterday, reaching out to Jason from McCormick, I've reached out to our in-house cryptocurrency expert Aaron Bush for his comment about this news story. Um, yeah, and and I agree with a lot of his analysis actually, which is to say that Facebook was trying to be proactive when they went after a cryptocurrency that worked with regulators, uh, but that's a moving target, and it's actually offers a lot more challenges themselves. So, apparently, these four companies, which includes Visa, MasterCard, PayPal, and Stripe, as rumored, have issues with the fact that they believe Facebook oversold them on the, <laughs> the involvement of regulators, and no surprise there. Um, and just actually about the, the idea of cryptocurrencies working with regulators at all, because inherently, there's an idea that cryptocurrencies could undercut monetary policy. So, mm-hmm. a lot of European countries have already come out and said, hey, we, know, we don't actually think that Libra or any cryptocurrency Trying to become a stable coin, which Aaron tells me is a currency that is a cryptocurrency that is stable, so it's backed by real currency. Any any involvement or, or development of that actually inherently threatens the economic policies of the countries in which it is available. So I thought that was a really interesting argument. I, I don't think that this will long term derail Libra. They're not even planning on launching until June 2020. I think they had a backlist of like hundreds of companies that were willing to jump in the place of of other companies that might pull out. So maybe companies that are a little less worrisome about the European market and regulators might be willing to put up I think the 10 million dollars that they're asking yeah. um, to get this Libra off the ground. Look, I'll buy Max first stitch fix fix if they are able to get this thing off the ground by 2020. I mean, I just don't. This is just going to take. I I, we said this. I know June 2020. Mm -hmm. I just. This is just going to be a long. 
just a really long struggle to kind of get this thing to a point where they're ready to go. I, I mean, I, I empathize with Facebook trying to, they were in an almost a no win situation. They couldn't do this so privately behind the scenes. So they had to come out and make an announcement of it. Then you saw all of the regulatory challenges to it. And you saw a lot of the governments raise concerns and then different um, groups of different organizations inside the governments. Now you're seeing a little bit of the companies starting to push back a little bit. So I, I agree with Emily. I think eventually this will kind of move in this direction. But I just think 2020 is just a very early time frame for it. So, Mac, your first Stitch Fix fix will be on me if they launch it in 2020. I'm already picking June it June 2020. I like it. I like it. And, Emily, you mentioned Aaron earlier, and I caught part of your conversation. <laughs> and I, I may butcher this quote, but I asked Aaron what he thought. And I think, he, I think this was the quote. He said, scale is Facebook's superpower. Brand is Facebook's kryptonite. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's right. But he said it in such a wise, knowing way that I feel <laughs> like we can't Aaron quite can. replicate it here. But that's a, that's a really good point. And you know, Facebook, to the extent that it has regulatory issues, has it because of poor judgments that they made in the past. So that's not to say that there's going to be doing anything. Like talk, the idea of working with regulators now, it's it's. One thing to say that, and it's another thing to do it, to walk the walk. Facebook has a history of not walking the walk. That being said, I actually feel like they're progressing a lot quicker than people expected to with Libra. Now they're saying that they are the actual structure of it, the technology, they already have up and running, right? So they're they're sending mock payments within itself. So I actually think that I mean that happened months before people expected. So I would Mac, if there's some bet about the stitch fix take box, it. yeah, I would take it. Okay. I think it's probably go, gonna baby. happen. Okay, I'm gonna take it. So mm -hmm. status update for Libra in a word would be what? Oh, a word. Wait. That's their status update, right? Mm -hmm. It's a wait and see thing. I think making a judgment right now, based purely off of a rumor that four companies may be pulling out, is too soon. That's not to say that there's really anything behind Libra. Facebook obviously has its own host of issues, but this is turning into a long status update. Long story short, wait. Okay. Well, the Desert Island question, it's an easy one today. It's a binary choice. Two stocks, and you have to hold one over the next five years. You've got Stitch Fix. Or you have Facebook. Well, I own Facebook. I don't own Stitch Fix, and I would buy Stitch Fix here and and uh, hold it for the next five years. I'm not touching Stitch Fix with a ten foot pole, so I am <laughs> buying myself some Facebook. Okay, there you have it. Well, as always, people on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Emily and Andy, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Mac. Thank you. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Matt Greer. Thanks for listening, and we will see you tomorrow.